prayer. And uh, please agree with me because this uh, powerful series we're going to be getting into. So, Father, as we come in Jesus' name and through his blood, we just take a moment. We just thank you, Lord, for the awesome power of the blood of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for an open heaven that's here in your glory here. Holy Spirit, we thank you for coming to anoint and empower this time. And, Lord Jesus, as you're in our midst, and, Father, your eyes of favor shining countenance upon us, that everything's going to be accomplished in and through this time that you will be done in the word. I thank you, Lord for speaking through me, and even now by the Holy Spirit moving upon every person that's going to be hearing this or seeing this, to give us good fertile soil of hearts and minds and lives, good soil. And this will go out as living seeds of truth sown in that good soil, watered by the Holy Spirit, take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains till Jesus comes. And Lord, I thank you for the winds of the Spirit carrying this among the nations. It's going to get where it's supposed to and accomplish what it's supposed to. As the Bible says, it will not return void, but it will accomplish that which you sent it for to do. And Lord, we thank you also for light shining in the darkness and dispelling all the deception of the enemy and bring truth. Lord, we submit this unto you. We resist the devil. Jesus said the birds of the air try to steal the seed. So we agree together as a church in anything that would try to hinder this word from getting where it's supposed to and accomplishing what it's supposed to. In the name of Jesus, we bind you right now. You will back off right now. And Lord, I thank you for your angels just clearing that out. And I thank you, Lord, for this being a powerful time that everything's going to be accomplished, that you will be done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so I'm starting a series, and I'm entitling it Paranormal. And this is going to be dealing with some of the more dark things that are out there. And um, as I look at this, the key scripture that I'm looking at is 1 Timothy 4.1. And I want to answer the question up front as to why am I dealing with this subject? And it just so happens we are around the Halloween time, but that's not why I'm dealing with it. I'm dealing with it because of this, a couple reasons I'm going to give you tonight. Number one... 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, seems to indicate that in the latter days, there will be an increase of demonic, satanic activity in the earth, okay? And so, let me read 1 Timothy 4, 1. It says, but the Holy Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, that some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful, that can translate seducing or deceiving demons, and also teachings of demons. So there's going to be an increase of that demonic activity that causes people to be deceived and fall away even from the faith. So I'm dealing with this because the Bible seems to indicate that somebody needs to get up behind a pulpit and talk about it from a biblical perspective, okay? And a couple other things, Matthew 24, verse 4 when the disciples came to Jesus and asked him, you know, what about the end of days? You know, help us to understand. Jesus wasn't speaking here to the multitudes. It was kind of a confidential briefing, if you will, of just his core leadership. And he sat down on the Mount of Olives and he began to talk to them. But the very first thing Jesus said was this. He said, watch out that no one deceive you. So remember that because deception is thick. And listen, we're, this isn't something that's in the future anymore at all. This is something we're, uh, we're already deeply in, great deception in the world right now, big time. It's already going on. And so I'm trying to put this out there because there's people that are out there that are searching, 
And they need to be able to, to find preachers and churches that will give them the truth, man. And so here's a couple other things. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 9 says, the, the one who's coming. Now, there's coming a day when there's going to be an antichrist and a false prophet. Uh, for the sake of time, I'm not going to rabbit trail there. But for those that want to understand end-time prophecy, you can go into our podcast from River of Life, and there's a Spine of Prophecy series I did, and also we went through the book of Revelation. But for the sake of time tonight, I'm going to say it quickly, there, there will be a rise of an Antichrist. Now, with that said, it's going to be a counterfeit thing where Lucifer is going to be like a counterfeit to God the Father. So it's like this false satanic trinity. Is everybody hearing me tonight? Lucifer is going to be like a false father, Yahweh God, the God of Abraham. And then his false Christ will be the Antichrist, a false Messiah. And then the false prophet will be like a counterfeit to the Holy Spirit. So with that said, 2 Thessalonians 2.9 says, the one who's coming is in accord with the activity of Satan. This is the Antichrist and the false prophet with all power and false signs and wonders. So did everybody catch that? Because sometimes we read over this pretty quickly. False signs and wonders that are public, okay? And I think about when Moses went before the Pharaoh and said, you know, God said, let my people go. And he had some signs that God gave him. And what happened? The, those that were the witches that were there, and Pharaoh's court, these, these would be the, the occultists. They were the ones that could actually duplicate some of the things that Moses was doing, which actually deceived the people there. It deceived Pharaoh. Pharaoh basically would say to himself, I'm sure, Moses, look, you want to come in here and do a couple parlor tricks? My witches over here, my magicians, they can do the same thing. What's the big deal? You see, deception. It brought about deception. And also, 2 Timothy 3.13, but evil men, okay, and the word there in the Greek is poneros, and the evil men can be translated this, bad, evil, wicked, harmful, lewd, and malicious, okay? Evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse. Now, Derek Prince pointed this out because the guy knew Greek, and so he read it in Greek. He said this, the word imposters here, it means like it's the word goes in Greek, and it means a seducer or a wizard. And it's the word that's commonly used in Greek for a wizard. So somebody that's an occultist. So let me read this again with that understanding. It says that evil men and imposters. Who are the imposters? The witches. Are you following me tonight? Evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse. What are they doing? Deceiving and being deceived. So I'm trying to point out these things because the Bible seems to indicate that there's going to be a major increase of satanic activity and deception in the world. And especially, it seems to indicate to me that there's going to be a rise of the occult and occult activity. And we're seeing that in our culture. And during this series, I'm going to take my time with it. Tonight, I'm dealing with Lucifer, but I'm going to deal with demonology. 
and I'm going to deal with realms of the occult. Now I'm going to deal with things like hauntings and all this stuff, which I'll explain as we go from a biblical perspective. So evil men and imposters growing worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So some would say, well, why are you dealing with this, Pastor? This is basically another reason I'm dealing with it, Ephesians 5.11. It says, do not participate in useless deeds of darkness. So we're not supposed to be participating in dark, satanic activity here. But instead, here's the command, expose it. Have you ever considered the fact that Ephesians 5.11 actually commands us to not be involved in darkness, but to expose it? Did you know that we are commanded in Scripture to expose it? And so it is actually my job as a preacher, if I'm going to preach the whole counsel of God, that God uses me to help expose darkness and rip away the veil, take the mystery. You know why a lot of people, maybe not everybody, but you know why a lot of people start dabbling in the occult? Because the word occult means hidden, and it's got like esoteric knowledge, and people start dabbling into it because of the mystery about it. But if you strip away the mystery and show it for what it is openly, it will cause a lot of people to lose interest. But see, there's something mysterious about it. It kind of draws people toward it, like, well, what, what is that? You know? And a lot of people get involved in the occult also out of pride because they want to have some type of an, a knowledge or a power that others don't have. And I'll talk about this more and more as we go. But the church has got to be the source of truth in this. People are out there looking, and they don't know the truth, and if we don't give them the word, they're not going to have any type of an anchor that they can, they can latch hold of. You know, the way that the church should be, have you ever seen those lighthouses, maybe in movies, and sailors are out there, the fog is, is there, and they're, they, they're, depending on their instruments, they're trying to see the sky, but it's so foggy, but what's out there? The lighthouse. And they can begin to aim toward that. See, that's what we're supposed... There's people out there that are looking for truth, and they're looking in different religions. They're looking in the occult. They're dabbling in the New Age. They're trying to find some type of truth. And the church is supposed to be like that lighthouse that they get all mixed up in this fog, but they look up, and there it is. They're being drawn to Jesus, who is the truth, you see. So from a biblical perspective, I'm going to approach these things and expose it as we go. And so tonight, I want to talk about the origins of this being that we call Lucifer. The Bible calls Satan, which means the adversary or the enemy. I'm going to deal with his beginning. I'm going to deal with what he's doing today um, as far as in the second heaven. And then I'm going to deal with his ultimate demise. So... We're just going to go through this together. Is that okay? I'm going to look at a couple passages. I'm going to read them and explain them as I go. But Ezekiel 28 is where we're going to start. And it's amazing to me, and I'll point this out as we go. I'm, I'm coming kind of as a teacher tonight. Is that okay? And just exposing the word line upon line. And Ezekiel 28 shows, and also Isaiah 14, how deeply God spoke to these Old Testament prophets. It's amazing. They would see in their time, they would see what God was saying and doing in the natural, but they would also see many times things that were in ancient times past, and they would see far into the future of the demise of the enemy. And somehow, you're going to see this, 
It all comes out in these passages, and it's amazing to me. And these are two passages where this is very clear. So Ezekiel 28, starting with verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, Thus says the Lord, because your heart is lifted up, and you have said and thought, I am a god. I sit in the seat of the gods, in the heart of the seas, yet you are only a man and not God. Though you imagine yourself to almost be more than mortal with your mind as the mind of a God, indeed, you are imagining yourself wiser than Daniel. There is no secret you think that is hidden from you. Now, um, Ezekiel is speaking here to the leader, the king of Tyre, but he's calling him the prince of Tyre. This would be their, their king, okay? And behind the prince of Tyre, who's the physical king, the human king, we know there's always a principality, okay? Is this making sense? So in the natural, he's speaking here to this king of Tyre as being a very arrogant man. But you're going to see as we go that it blends in where there's a comparison here and Ezekiel begins to see Satan in this. And it's really amazing. Just follow me. If you can, follow along. But it says, indeed, you are imagining yourself as wiser than Daniel, that there's no secret you think that is hidden from you. With your own wisdom and with your own understanding, you've gotten riches and power and have brought gold and silver into your treasuries. So what's the great condemnation here? Pride, isn't it? But your great wisdom and by your traffic, oh, I'm sorry, verse 4, by, with your own wisdom and with your own understanding, you've gotten your riches and power and brought gold and silver into your treasuries. By your wisdom and by your traffic, you've increased your riches and power. And your heart is proud and lifted up because of your wealth. Therefore, thus says the Lord, because you have imagined your mind as the mind of God, Behold, therefore, I am bringing strangers upon you, the most terrible of nations, and they will draw their swords against the beauty and the wisdom of Tyre, and they shall defile your splendor. They will bring you down to the pit of destruction, and you shall die the death of the Tyrrhenians that are slain in the heart of the seas. Will you still say I'm a god before him who slays you? But you are only a man made of the earth and no God in the hand of him who wounds and profanes you. You will die the death of the uncircumcised by the hands of strangers, for I have spoken it, says the Lord. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, now here's where he's still speaking to Tyre, but it shifts. That's the natural king and the principality, the God behind it. But now, son of man, take up a lamentation over, and it says the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord. So it went from the prince of Tyre to the king of Tyre, and this can be confusing because, but anyway, the king of Tyre he's referring to here is Satan. And I'm going to show you. Take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord, you are, you are the full measure and pattern of exactness, giving the finishing touch of all that constitutes completion, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God, you see, do you see how there's layers in this of revelation? Because Satan's great sin was pride. And this was also this king of Tyre's great sin. So as he's, as he's dealing with this, 
he's dealing with layers of revelation here, okay? And he goes back in time, so to speak, and he's, he's speaking of, of this being Lucifer. Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre, which is Lucifer, and say to him, thus is the Lord God, you are full of measure and the pattern of exactness and full of wisdom and beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, and it gives nine, okay? And your settings, now this is interesting. Let me just stop here for a moment. Nine has become in the Bible the number of judgment. And so it's interesting that Lucifer, as we go through this, you're going to see that Lucifer apparently had some kind of a worship, ministry, priesthood of sorts that he was the leader of in heaven. And his number was connected to the number nine. It had, he had these nine stones. And later on, when God gave um, Aaron the priesthood on the earth, Aaron had 12 stones, which is the number of God's government. Is everybody following me? But Lucifer had something in heaven. You're going to see this. It says, your, this is verse 13, your settings and sockets and engravings were wrought in gold, but there... It can, it can read this way. I looked it up in the Hebrew, and the King James says it this way, your pipes and tabrets were wrought in gold. And it actually, in the Hebrew, implied like a, a bezel where on a necklace you would have the, um, the metal that is like maybe a teardrop shape, and the stone would be embedded down into that, and then it's locked down, a bezel. You see, and it's saying that there was some kind of pipes and tabrets that were created in this being that we know as Lucifer on the day you were created and they were prepared. But these pipes and tabrets, pipes have to do with um, like chords. If I was to play over here on the piano and I was to play like a C, E, and G with my right hand, it would make the C chord come out. And that's like the pipes, that's melodies. But then the tabrets has to do with like a tambourine, and it has to do with rhythms. So created in this being was something to do with worship. And it's interesting to me because the Bible says the gift and calling is without repentance. So even though Satan has fallen, he still has these giftings. And isn't it interesting that it seems that he's... that. Satan's kingdom has always had kind of a significant power in the area of music. Have you ever noticed that? And it says about him, is it okay we just go through this tonight? I'm going to read through it. It says this about Satan in verse 14. It says, you were the anointed cherub that covers. Now, I want you to notice here that he was of the order of a cherubim. Now, You've read in the Bible about the four living creatures. Remember how they were this really odd-looking creatures that had four faces, like a man, an ox, an eagle. And um, they were around the throne. Um, it translates here, and I don't want to get bogged down, a CH, but really it should be a K. It's the Caribbean. But anyway, these were the ones that in the tabernacle were interwoven in that veil that separated the Holy of Holies, called the Parachet. That veil there would keep up, and it was the, the cherub, the cherubim that, that were there. They were also the ones on the Ark of the Covenant. 
that were on each side. Their wings would come up like this. And they are around the throne. And whenever God kicked Adam out of the garden so he could not, in a fallen condition, eat of the tree of life and live forever in a fallen condition, he had to kick him out of the garden. What did, who did he put there to keep him out? He put a carob there, a carabim, with a flaming sword. So the carabim are around God's throne, and you know what they are? They're guardians of God's glory. See, around the, the tabernacle of Moses, called the Mishkan, around that, God had Moses in the, the priesthood kind of encamp around the Mishkan and around the front, the tabernacle, to keep just common people from just walking in. You know, they kind of guarded the holiness there. Does that make sense? So these beings are around the throne. And if you read Ezekiel, there was this whole scene I may remember reading this of a wheel within a wheel and Ezekiel saw God's throne kind of mobile and the Caribbean were there and it some scholars I'm just giving you some things to think about tonight about this okay some scholars believe that God's portable throne which of course is is seen in the Ark of the Covenant okay but his portable throne might even possibly be made up of these Caribbean that maybe they interlock themselves in such a way in their wings and they just kind of carry the Lord. But the Lord sits upon a throne and there was these four beings. But there was a time in ancient times past when there was a fifth living creature that we know as Lucifer. And he was the anointed cherub that covers and it seems to indicate, I'm just speculating with this, that just like a throne, you know, a throne would have maybe a high back of the chair part of it, the high back, that there would be these four creatures, but maybe Lucifer was behind and up above God, and he would lead worship. And heaven was there, and he would lead the worship of God. And at some point... He got lifted up with pride. I'm going to keep going. Is this making sense tonight? I'm trying to paint maybe a different picture of what is common knowledge because people say, well, he's a fallen angel. Well, yeah, that's true. But specifically, he was a fallen cherub, a certain class of angel, which are very powerful and were actually the ones that were right there at the throne of God, guardians of his glory. They walked right there with him, you see. And it says that, um, you were the anointed cherub that covers with overshadowing wings. And I set you so. And you were upon the mountain of God. You walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire, like the paved work of gleaming sapphire stone upon which the God of Israel walked on Mount Sinai. You remember that story. So you were on the holy mountain of God? Has anybody ever really thought about this for a moment? So apparently in heaven... Okay, on the earth, that would be like with the Garden of Eden and all that, but I guess being considered like the first heaven or whatever. The second heaven is where Satan's kingdom is in the atmosphere, the stars, the planets, even down into the blue. But beyond that, the furthest recesses of the north 
is the third heaven. In the third heaven, this is where God dwells. This is his kingdom, okay? It seems to be that there's some kind of a holy mount of assembly in heaven that goes up. And at the top of that, I don't have time to go to all the scriptures, but when Moses was given the tabernacle, God told him, you better make sure and replicate it the same as I showed you because these were actual replications of what was in heaven. So apparently, there is some kind of a tabernacle of Moses or a temple, if you will, at the top of this mount of assembly where there's an outer court, there's a holy place where the incense is, the menorah, and then beyond that, where God's throne is, the holy of holies. But you go up the mount to get there. And God replicated this through Moses on the earth, put his glory there, replicated something of his throne in the Ark of the Covenant. And if you read it, you can see that the portable tabernacle was moved to like a high place. And that's why you get references to going up to meet with God or whatever, up to the mount of God to worship. So verse 15, he said about Satan here, Ezekiel said, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity and guilt were found in you. I want everybody to say iniquity. So this is something I don't have time right now to get into. We will get into this in this series. But sin is missing the mark. It's not on purpose. Transgression means rebellion. So it's when you know something's wrong, you do it anyway. But iniquity is bent, crooked, perversion in somebody's nature that causes them to repetitively be in bondage to something and keep doing something over and over, even though they don't want to, but they're in bondage to sin. But Jesus was bruised for our iniquity, amen? But you can see here that Satan had iniquity come up within him. And what was the iniquity? He was lifted up with pride, which you'll see. Verse 16, now this is interesting. Through the abundance of your commerce or your trade, you were filled with lawlessness and violence and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you out as a profane thing from the mountain of God and the guardian cherub drove you out from the midst of the stones of fire. So Satan was stripped of his title stripped of his dignity, stripped of his office. And we know Jesus said, I saw you fall to the earth like lightning. So let me explain this on verse 16. Through the abundance of your commerce, your trade. Now, if you look that up in Hebrew, that means like a talebearer. So what that actually means here is the, when it says through the abundance of your trade was that Satan was going through heaven and he was speaking to different angels, different classes of angels and different types of angels and he was telling them things that were against God. You know, I can only speculate, but things like, well, you know, if God really loved you, then he would do this, that, and the other. If, if God was really all that he says he is, then this would be different. If I was in God's place, then I would do this for you. And he was doing something there 
to try to cause a rebellion, like a mutiny, a revolt against God, and to lead the angels to turn against him. That's the abundance of your trade. That's what that means in Hebrew, from the abundance of your tail-bearing, your gossiping, your slandering. You were filled with lawlessness and violence. You sinned, and I cast you out. So the picture here is that Satan was this great being that, that was created perfect and beautiful, might, maybe even the most powerful and beautiful being in heaven, being the worship leader. And God totally strips him of any of his dignity, any of his office, any of his authority, his position, and throws him down from heaven to the earth as a profane thing. And it goes on to explain why in verse 17 it says this. This is where we're going. Your heart was proud and lifted up because of your beauty. See, Lucifer got his eyes off of worshiping God and began to get his eyes on himself and how beautiful he was. And he got lifted up with pride. So that's the iniquity that was found in him was pride. Pride always corrupts and leads to rebellion. And it says this, you were corrupted in your wisdom for the sake of your splendor, and I cast you to the ground, and I lay before you kings that they might gaze at you, which I believe is a reference of the other powerful angels seeing his fall. In verse 18, he said, you have profaned your sanctuary." Isn't it interesting that the first recorded sin that we know of is actually happened in heaven, right around the throne? And Lucifer, who was supposed to be have some kind of a priesthood of sorts, leading worship, had those nine stones, and here he was now being used in an evil way, full of iniquity, to profane, to defile the sanctuary of God. And isn't it interesting without belaboring the point, that once a year the high priest would go in the Holy of Holies and, and sprinkle with his finger seven times the blood on the mercy seat of the throne, and the sins of the nation were cleansed. And it's interesting, the Bible says about Jesus that he entered once and for all into the most holy place of heaven, the temple of heaven, into no doubt the Holy of Holies, the Day of Atonement, with his own blood, and made atonement, and through that, we are made the righteousness of God in Christ. His people have been cleansed, but let me add, isn't it interesting that he went to the very place where Lucifer defiled, and he cleansed it as a priest? And it says this, you profaned your sanctuaries by the multitudes of your iniquities and the enormity of your guilt, and by the unrighteousness of your trade. What was his trade again? Gossip, slander, slandering God, trying to turn people against God. Therefore, I have brought forth a fire from your midst, and it has consumed you, and I have reduced you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who looked at you. So this was a very public thing here. And we know, if I could add this in, we know from the book of Revelation, verse chapter 12, I believe, that when the dragon was cast down, his tail took a third of the stars with him. So we know that there was a third of the angels that fell with Lucifer. So his trade did affect a third of the angels. He turned them. 
He said, therefore, I brought out a fire and I cast you down. And then verse 19, all who know you among the people are astonished and appalled at you. You have come to a horrible end and shall never return to being. So in other words, all those people in heaven, well, these angels rather, all these angelic hosts, these angelic beings that, that saw Lucifer, all those years leading worship, beautiful, powerful, and, and no doubt those pipes and tabrets within him. And he was a, a very powerful, beautiful being, leading worship, having some kind of a priesthood, being a leader, being somebody of great stature in heaven. Now they're seeing him totally stripped of any authority and power, totally losing his position, being cast down to the earth. And all of these powerful angels are looking at him appalled at what he once was. And now he's been cast out to never return again. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, verse 20, then 21, son of man, set your face towards Sidon and prophesy against her. And, and then he begins to continue prophecies. But I want you to see this about Lucifer. And the word Lucifer, which we'll get into some here in Isaiah 14, means like a illuminated one or a shining. And this had to do with his priesthood and his glory, in my opinion. And here's the scary thing. In Paul's writings, he said about Satan, he said that he does appear as an angel of light. So Lucifer still has the ability to appear in such a way that would disarm people because he seems to be of God, he seems to be very beautiful, and there's some kind of a shining like a light coming from him, but it is extremely deceptive and evil. So then we look at Isaiah chapter 14. Again, this is amazing how God showed Isaiah layers of revelation here, which I'll show you as we go. In Isaiah 14, starting with verse 1, it says, For the Lord will have mercy on Jacob, the captive Jews in Babylon. So when Isaiah is prophesying here, again, he starts out in the natural, and he's prophesying on God taking captive Israel in Babylon and restoring them back to the land of Israel, okay? So there is something in the natural here. But you're going to see in this layers of revelation where Isaiah begins to prophesy about Satan's fall. And then he sees, down the road, he sees the fall of the Antichrist Babylon. Isn't that something? I'll show you. It's amazing. So these, these guys, these prophets in the Old Testament, God spoke to them, and there was just layers of revelation. It was awesome. And so it says this, I will have mercy on Jacob, the captive Jews in Babylon, and will again choose Israel and set them in their own land. And foreigners who are proselytes. Now these foreigners is, I want you to remember that, okay, for the future I'm going to talk about. Will join them and cleave to the house of Israel. Verse 2, and the peoples of Babylon shall take them and bring them to their own country of Judea and help restore them. In the house of Israel, though that was fulfilled, remember, through um, Persia in the days of Cyrus. All right, and it says, And the house of Israel will possess the foreigners who prefer to stay with them, the land of the Lord as male and female servants, and they will take captive. Those who, uh, captives, they have been, and they will rule over their former oppressors. So they will go back, 
and they will rule again in the land that God has for them, okay? And then verse three, when the Lord has given you rest from your sorrow and pain and from the trouble and the unrest and from the hard service with which you were made to serve, you shall take up this taunting parable against the king of Babylon saying, how the oppressor has stilled the restless insolence. The golden and exacting city has ceased. So in other words, they were once captive but now they're going to go back to their land and their old oppressors, now they will rule over them to the point that they're going to mock Babylon. Okay, that's what it's saying here. In verse 5, the Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of the tyrant rulers, who smote the people in anger with incessant blows and trod down the nations in wrath with unrelenting persecution until he who smote in persecution no one hinders anymore. Verse 7, the whole earth is at rest. Now, this is where, to me, Isaiah begins to transition here. He's seeing something. He's seeing that there would be physical, natural Israel leaving Babylon, and their oppressors now, that power would be broken. They would be restored to the land. They would have rest. And anybody that used to oppress them, now they would rule over them. So he saw that. Now, look at what he says here. He begins to get layers of revelation because right here, he says, the whole earth is at rest and quiet, and they break forth singing. I believe that Isaiah is seeing the coming of Jesus in the millennial reign. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. Layers of revelation here. Yes, so he's comparing this deliverance from Babylon in the natural at that time to one day there would be the Antichrist Babylon whose power would be broken. The Antichrist rule is broken. The Messiah will come and, his, and God's people will find rest under him. You see? And he goes on to say, yes, the fir trees, the cypresses rejoice. O kings of Babylon, even cedars of Lebanon saying, since you have been laid low, no woodcutter comes to us again. In number verse 9, Sheol, Hades, the place of the dead, below is stirred up to meet you at your coming, O tyrant Babylonian rulers. It stirs up the shades of the dead to greet you, even all the chief ones of the earth. It rises from their thrones in astonishment at your humbled condition, all the kings of the nations. This is talking about the resurrection. And he says, all of them will tauntingly say to you, I believe he's saying here to the Antichrist and the false prophet into, into Satan. He's saying, they will tauntingly say to you, have you also become weak as we are? You've become like one of us. Your pomp and magnificence, you are brought down to shield to the underworld. Remember about Lucifer? What does Revelation say? He's going to be bound down in the pit for a thousand years. Along with the sound of your harps, and then he goes on to say, the maggots which prey upon dead bodies are spread out under you, and the worms cover you. O Babylonian rulers. I believe that's a reference to these end-time evil uh, alliances the Antichrist will have. And then, and then, here's the layers of revelation. Do you see how this is amazing? Isaiah saw his, the coming deliverance of Israel, but then he's seeing here the power of end-time Babylon broken, and he's seeing the coming of Jesus Christ. But then he also goes back to ancient times that was before Adam, and he sees this. 
He says, how you have fallen from heaven, O light bringer, day star, son of the morning. How you have been cut down to the ground, you who weaken and lay low the nations. O blasphemous satanic king of Babylon. This is the devil. This is the fall of Satan right here. He saw this back in ancient times, verse 13. And you said in your heart, now here's the key. We just read in Ezekiel, what was within Lucifer? Iniquity. What was the iniquity? Pride and rebellion. And it says here, he said, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven and exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the Mount of Assembly in the uttermost north. See, Lucifer wasn't content to be playing second fiddle, if you will, to be the one that was leading worship and all, all of his beauty and, and power that God gave him. He wasn't content with that. He was so full of himself that he wanted to be God. That takes a lot of pride. I mean, none of us in this room, thank God, have ever thought to ourselves, I want to be God Almighty. You know what I'm saying? This guy, wow. And so he said in his heart, I will ascend to heaven and I will exalt my throne above the stars. You know what that is? The other angels. I'm going to be superior to my peers. Let me warn everybody as we're going through this. Please be careful that you and I, that we guard our hearts from pride because any of us can fall into this trap. Don't ever think that you need to be set above your peers and be better than them. Be careful with that. You see, Peter taught us, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and in due time, God will exalt you. Everybody say, God will exalt you. See, our job is to humble ourselves all the way down. It's God's job to exalt. And let's look at the example. Satan wanted what? The highest place that you could possibly get. He wanted to be God. But yet, we see that he was cast all the way down to the lowest place that you can possibly go. Now, the opposite is Jesus, being God in the flesh, humbled himself as low as you could go. And what happened to him? God exalted him to the highest place that there can possibly be at the very right hand of God. So see, if we humble ourselves, we'll be exalted by God. But if we exalt ourselves, we will be humbled. And so Satan basically said here, I'm going to exalt myself above my peers. I'm better than the other angels. I'm going to be above everybody else. Arrogant. And I'll sit on the Mount of Assembly, the uttermost north. That's God's throne. Then he said in verse 14, I'll ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I'll make myself like the Most High. But yet, verse 15, you will be brought down to Sheol, that's hell, to the utter, innermost recesses of the pit, the region of the dead. So here Isaiah is seeing that Satan one day would be bound down in the lower recesses into a pit where the nations would look down at him and say, is this the guy that shook nations? You know, that he would be brought down to the lowest place, humiliated, bound. And he says in verse 16, 
Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you, saying, is this the one that made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a wilderness and overthrew its cities, who would not permit its prisoners to return home? All the kings of the nations, all of them lie sleeping in glorious array in their beautiful tombs, right? But you, you're cast away from a tomb like a loathed growth or a premature birth or an abominable branch, like the raiment of the slain. You are clothed with the slain, those thrust through with the sword who go down to the stones of the pit into which carcasses are thrown like a dead body trodden underfoot. In other words, it's saying here, you're going to be so despised that you're not going to have like a beautiful tomb like an earthly king would have with a beautiful headstone and all that. So no, no, no. You're just going to be a loathsome, loathsome, despised, despicable thing that's trodden underfoot, despised by all. And it says in verse 20, you shall not be joined with them in burial because you have destroyed your land, have slain your people. May the descendants of evildoers never, never more be named. So we see here, is this helping paint a little bit of a picture about the devil? And the nature of Lucifer is what? To be lifted up with pride and then to rebel. And let me just warn everybody about that. Be careful. Be careful to guard our hearts about pride. When John Davis was with us, he said that there's something more than just the presence that we need. And he was talking about humility. Because even in the presence of God, even among the fiery stones of the Mount of Assembly around the throne of God, pride could still spring up. That's a warning to all of us, isn't it? So just be careful with this pride business. We start wanting to be up and be noticed. And Rodney Howard Brown is funny anyway, but he was talking about, when I, last time I was with him, he was talking about how he's seen this pattern. And he said that somebody will come in and, and really get touched powerfully by God. And here's the pattern. You ready? He says that they'll, they'll come in, they get really touched powerfully. So they're like, man, you know, at his church or whatever, man, I love this place. I, I love Brother Rodney. And then pretty, pretty soon they get to where they know more than Brother Rodney. Then pretty soon they want to tell Brother Rodney everything he's doing wrong. <laughs> then the last phase of deception is I hate Brother Rodney and want to destroy him. <laughs> and um, do you see the pattern? Do you see the pattern there? What is the root of that? Pride. That's the same thing that Lucifer did in heaven. He got lifted up with pride, and he began to, turn, he began to despise God. He wanted to be God, and he wanted others to, to view him as God and to lead a revolt and set himself up. And you see the same pattern in churches with church splitters, etc., Leviathan, man, the great destroyer, gets on some people. Pretty soon, they, they're lifted up with pride. They're smarter than all the leaders. They begin to despise them. They want to, what do they do? Through their trade. They go all throughout there and try to turn other people against the leadership, hate the leadership. And the, what are they doing? They're doing the same thing on the earth that Lucifer did in ancient times in heaven. And they start leading a revolt against the leaders. They end up splitting the church. People lead, just like the third that, that the dragon swept down, they, they leave a big chunk of them. Is this hitting home yet? Is it not kind of concerning that we see 
this type of activity, even in the glory, even when in times of revival where the glory is awesome, the presence of God that affects so many people, even in those times, every minister will tell you there's still been a root of pride that will spring up in some. And I believe historically, for the most part, what has brought down the flow of the Holy Spirit so powerfully, even in great revivals, if you study it, what hinders the ebb and flow, what, what hinders, if you go back and look at it, pretty soon somehow pride got in. Whether it got in the leaders or got in the people, a lot of times pride comes in. And because of pride, God has to lift and move on because it would destroy. And here's the warning of pride. The Bible says in Proverbs, pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before what a fall. You'll see, pride will bring great destruction in your life and cause people to fall into sin. But how many knows if we'll humble ourselves? The Bible says that God gives grace to the humble. You know what that is? No matter what we face in life, no matter how terrible it is, no matter how difficult the warfare, if we will humble ourselves down to the ground and say, Lord, we humble ourselves, we ask you for the grace to overcome. God's Holy Spirit will rise within you and give you supernatural strength and wisdom, and you will rise up with the grace to overcome that thing. But people that are lifted up with pride, the Bible says that God opposes the proud. Now, what type of trouble is somebody in when God is opposing them? Do you stand a chance? <laughs> I would rather have all the fallen angels chasing me than have God oppose me. So, look, that's, that's the great warning, that those that get lifted up with pride, there's an opposition by God, there's destruction, there's a fall. But like Jesus, if we will humble ourselves, and I, and I was looking at the life of Jesus, and I'm going to give a few more things before we pray. But I was looking at the life of Jesus, and I saw how humble he was being God in the flesh, that think about the times that people, Jesus would see something great and the people would come to him and they would try to set him up as a king. You remember that? And what did Jesus do? He would just slip out through the crowd, disappear. You know what Jesus was doing right there? He said, I'm not gonna promote myself and I'm not gonna let man promote me. I'm gonna humble myself to the dirt and when it's time in due season, God the Father will promote me. If Jesus had let them put him up as a king, he would have just been up as some kind of an earthly ruler there with those. And, but Jesus humbled himself all the way to the cross, all the way to the tomb, all the way down into the underworld. He humbled himself down to the dirt, man. And you know what? God raised him up what? To the highest place, the right hand of the Father. So when Satan fell, he was cast down to the earth. This is just my opinion at the way I think that things might have been. I'm just speculating here. And I'm going to close out with a couple things. But there's something that a lot of scholars believe this. In Genesis 1-1 to 1-2, what's called like a gap. So Genesis 1-1 says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So God created the heavens, plural, shamayim in Hebrew it is plural, and the earth. Now, how long 
from that was it until the earth became formless and void. Because there's something that happened where the earth, and in the Hebrew, it can read, and it became, it can read that way, became formless and void. It was in a destroyed condition. We know that Jesus said, I saw him cast to the earth like lightning. So we know that Satan fell to the earth. I'm just going to give you something to think about, and then you can take it and believe it however you want to, okay, because it's not real crystal clear in the Bible. But I'm not alone in this. A lot of scholars believe this way. I believe that in the beginning, whenever that was, God created the heavens and the earth, and they were beautiful. And it was, in, I mean, it could be millions, billions, trillions of years ago. Nobody knows. And I believe that there was some kind of a creation on the earth back then that we don't really know much of anything about, but we see the fossils, we see the dinosaurs, we see all these things. And isn't it interesting that even secular science says there was some kind of a meteor or something that struck the earth and created an ice age? Isn't that interesting? What do you think that meteor might have been? <laughs> yeah, Satan and, and a third of the angels. I th- it's my opinion, I think so. But there was something on the earth that these huge megalithic beasts, this, and, it, and in my opinion, I'm just speculating here. I'm just thinking out loud with you that Satan might have had some kind of a rulership over and through his widespread trade. But anyway, when God judged him, everything that was under Satan's authority connected to him somehow also came under judgment. And so the earth was destroyed. Could it be, I'm just just speculating here, that God stripped him and there was a beautiful earth. It had creation on it of some kind. And God threw him and a third of the angels like a meteor and hit that earth. And when they struck the earth, God shut off the sun, moon, the stars. Maybe the earth was flooded and everything just was in a destroyed condition. And then we come in to Genesis 1 verse 2. In verse 3, and God begins now, for whatever reason, he has a love for the earth. He begins to come down and look at things in a destroyed condition. And the Holy Spirit was brooding over the waters, and God began to create. Now, when it says, let there be light, there has, that has to be a spiritual thing, because later, God said that he um, turned on basically the sun, moon, the stars. So that initial light there, I believe, has to do with God's glory being separated from the darkness. Isn't that awesome? But God separated, and then he separated as he went. He was, he was speaking over the earth. He began to separate the earth, and he put waters up here, up in the heavens, in the firmament. He separated that. Then he separated dry land from bodies of water. Remember this? And then he began to create the birds, the fish, the vegetation, put animals, finally created man. But right there on the earth where possibly, just speculating, possibly some kind of a rulership maybe that Lucifer had there, that because of that it shared in his destruction. But here's something interesting. When Satan and a third of the angels fell, we know that Adam and Eve were put in this beautiful garden. And Lucifer was running around. 
And we know that he entered the serpent. There's so many things I could rabbit trail here. But anyway, through the serpent spoke to her, and we know the fall. But here's what happened through all of that. Lucifer, being very brilliant and a powerful being, knew how to go about this. He didn't go to Adam. He went to Eve. I'm sure he went to her around the time she would eat every day where she'd be hungry. And I'm sure that he said things in such a way, but what was he doing? The same widespread trade again. He was trying to make God look bad and say this. Basically, if I could paraphrase, did God really say that you would die? And what is it that God's trying to keep from you? He was trying to shine a bad light on God. And he was trying to make Eve feel like that God was withholding something good from her. And so we know the story he, she ate and gave with the Adam. When Adam, here's what I, where I'm going with this. When Adam obeyed the devil, the Bible says you become a slave to the one that you obey. Adam basically gave to the devil all of his kingly authority that God had invested in him over the earth and over whatever that sphere of authority Adam had. Adam basically gave it to the devil. The devil was stripped of everything, powerless. But now through deception, he usurped Adam's authority. And that's what he's had now for the last 6,000 years. And so Satan and his fallen angels set up their rulership in the heavens. And this is what I want to close with here. Ephesians 6.10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his strength of his might and put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against what? Principalities and powers. Wickedness in the heavenly realms, you see. And it says, take on the armor of God that you'll be able to resist on that day, having done everything to stand, stand firm. So that is our battleground. Now, Satan and his fallen angels have set up some kind of a, a structure over in the second heaven realm to rule over the affairs of men as much as they can. And that was given them by Adam. Now, I'm going to talk about that more in future sermons, okay? But I want to close with this. It's very important that we have faith in God that drives away fear. See, the reason why a lot of times people don't want to talk about the stuff I'm going to be talking about a lot of Christians shy away from it. A lot of ministries will. Why is that? You know it as well as I do. Fear. Now, let me just warn about that ungodly fear. I know that God tells us in the Scriptures that we're to have a healthy fear of God. I understand that. That's like reverence. But this, there's an ungodly fear. And Revelation 21.8 warns us, but the cowardly, which is fearful. Everybody say the cowardly. And the unbelieving, the abominable. That means the defiled. And murderers. And the sexually immoral persons and the sorcerers and idolaters and all liars. Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And so the very first thing John says here is the cowardly. Have you ever thought about that? Really think about that for a moment. What are the cowardly going to do eventually? There's going to be a lot of um, selling outs, backsliding, a lot of capitulation of things that shouldn't be. 
but that's because of the cowardly. In 2 Timothy 1.7, we know God has not given us a spirit of what? Fear, which can translate like being timid. But rather, God's given us what? The Holy Spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. That's a disciplined mind. And then, not only that, but Daniel 11.32. Daniel is seeing the latter days here. And I'm just going to take this little snippet. And it says in Daniel 11.32, the latter part of the verse, it says, but the people that do know their God, they know their God, they will be strong and do exploits. So here's what I feel like God's saying to us. We need to get rid of any type of a fear and a timidity, any type of man-pleasing, anything that's rooted in fear. We need to get that off of us real good. And we need to rise up and know our God and let God use us in these last days, these final closing hours that we're in to do exploits. How many want to see a supernatural harvest come in? We're about to see it. How many want to see God heal the sick, raise the dead, drive out demons, the power of God, book of Acts? We're going to see it, but we're going to have to get rid of any type of fear because there's going to be a lot of opportunity to be afraid and it grieved me deeply, I can't tell you how much, to see the condition of the American church exposed through this pandemic. People, some people can act one way now, but there was a time they were, all, they were so full of fear. Let me tell you, when things come, there's going to be a lot of other things that are coming, a lot of other things, probably other plagues and all kinds of other things, wars, rumors of wars, natural disasters, all kinds of things, a lot of opportunity to fear. Jesus even said, because of the things coming upon the earth, men's hearts would melt within them because of fear. We better get over this fear business. And I'll tell you how you get over the fear business is by having great faith in God. I'll tell you something. I'm not worried about being deceived too much. I humble myself and realize that, you know, I need God's grace and all that. But I'll tell you why. I have faith in God to keep me. I'm not afraid that the devil's going to deceive me. I have faith in the one who's able to keep me from falling and present me blameless on that day. You see, there is a faith in him that whenever times get tough, he's going to protect us. He's going to deliver us. Isn't this the same God that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown in a fiery furnace? Isn't this the same one that there was the mightiest army of the day closing in on them, and God parted the waters and brought them through safely. And we could go on and on. You get the idea. But this is the same one that will protect us. And God is with us, and I believe that if we'll have faith in him, and it's going to take that. It's not going to be neutral here. We're going to have to have great faith in him, faith in his word, faith in who he is, faith in his blood, and faith in, in, in the weapons of our warfare. And in faith that God has encamped his angels around us, etc., and that we walk in an era of godly confidence and faith in him. And I believe that those that will do that, that God will allow us to do exploits. It could be that God's about to send, and I suspect it, the greatest revival we've, that's in the history of the church. And it's going to be so powerful because of the lateness of the hour, and God's going to do great exploits. And I don't know about you, but I want to be right in the middle of it. But it's going to take courage because there's going to be enemies. We're moving into times in America 
when things are not like they used to be. It could be that the government's going to be against it, and we've never had that before in America. And it could be some different enemies that we've never had before against the church. But we're going to have to have faith. And what I feel the Lord's saying to me is to stay focused on Him and on my calling and what He has for me to do, and He's going to work all the rest of it out. Amen. So, Lord, we just thank you. Lord, as we close this thing out, this part one, just looking at Lucifer and all that, Lord, we just thank you in these latter days. We're asking you to arise, O Lord. Let your enemies be scattered. Let those that hate you flee before you. Lord, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And Lord, supernaturally pour out your spirit on all flesh. Get a bride ready to meet you in the air and let the harvest yield. Break through the darkness. Roll back, Lord, the tides of darkness and gather in a supernatural harvest for your glory, your namesake. And Lord, help us to be right in the middle of what you're doing in these latter days, Lord that we would be used of you to do exploits. Lord, we thank you for it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. It's just for a few moments, if you can put on some worship back there, please. Just for a couple minutes here, maybe we can...